The scripture reading today is from Matthew 13, 44 through 46. It's on page 819 of your pew Bible. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Please remain standing for our last song, number 112, Jesus, the very thought of thee. invite you to find your Bibles once more and make your way back to Matthew chapter 13. We'll be looking at that text and a few others, but that's kind of our our pivot foot this morning. And let's pray as we look together at God's Word. Lord, our greatest need right now is to hear from you. And so we pray that your spirit would take your word and apply it to our hearts, God. That you would give us ears to hear you and eyes to see you as you truly are in all your beauty and majesty and glory. That our hearts might find our joy in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who's best known as the author of The Little Prince, which my son Joshua is reading for class right now. I remember reading that book and wondering why I had to read that book, but he once wrote, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. If they want the sea, they will build the ship. Whatever the cost, however long it takes, it will get built because the prize is worth it. Well, to adapt that metaphor, the church exists not so much for building ships, but for making disciples. Westgate was founded in 1975 for the purpose, the goal of reaching people in Metro West Boston with the love of Christ. The way we articulate our mission today is to glorify God as a family of believers who make disciples for Christ. And the need is great. You think of the, the rich spiritual heritage of New England, quite despite that, We're very much in a post-Christian part of the world, what some describe as a gospel-depleted culture. When you compare the great awakenings of the past to the spiritual climate today, as one author puts it, where gospel fires once burned now looks burnt over. That's what we call home. We live in what some call with good reason, America's new missional frontier. New England's a mission field. 
Only about 2% of New Englanders attend an evangelical or gospel preaching church. And the percentage of uh, atheists or agnostics here in Massachusetts is nearly double the national average. So we have a mission as a church, an urgent mission to bear witness to the gospel and to make disciples for Christ and to accomplish that noble cause, we could try to drum up people to collect resources and assign them tasks to do and programs to run. We can set goals, develop new strategies, offer training, plan events, recruit, resource, strategize, execute. And, and much of that is, it are very good things and, and often necessary things to do in order to get something done, including making disciples. But knowing what to do and how to do it isn't enough. Not if we want to truly be faithful and effective in our call. We have to want to do it. We have to want to build the ship or to make disciples, to be convinced and compelled that there's nothing better to give ourselves to No greater work under heaven than to glorify God as a family of believers who make disciples for Christ. And so if we're going to be faithful to our mission, we need a compelling vision. We need to learn to long for the endless immensity of the sea, or in our case, for the unsearchable riches of Christ and his glory and to teach others to long for it as well. And so today, Vision Sunday, I want to commend to all of us a picture, a picture that you all helped to paint as, we sought, as we've sought God together over the last several months, a vision that we believe is worth pursuing whatever the cost, however long it takes, because the prize is worth it. And that is to see Christ treasured right here in the Metro West and in every corner of the earth. Scriptures often use the imagery of a treasure to communicate uh, God's infinite value and the desire and satisfaction of his people. So again, if you're not still there, look again at Matthew 13. Here is a a collection of some of Jesus' parables. His short stories or sayings or, or metaphors that he used in order to reveal the mysteries of his kingdom to his people, the rule and reign of God, and also at the same time conceal those mysteries from those outside of his kingdom. And so we have this collection of parables, and in verses 44 to 46 we have two parables that together make the same point that there's nothing more valuable to lay hold of than Jesus and his kingdom. Even if it costs you everything that you have. The emphasis here is on the incomparable value of Christ and the passionate desire of his people and the unparalleled satisfaction that they find in him, that, that he alone can provide in this fallen world. And so the first parable describes the value of the kingdom by comparing it to a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven 
is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, the lawyers among us right now are, are trying to debate whether or not that's actually legal. If he, since he found it before he owned it and so on, that's not the point of the story. The point is that what he found was so incomparably valuable that if having it meant losing everything else in life, he was so willing to pay the cost. That's how valuable how much he desired it, how much satisfaction he found in that treasure. And the same goes with the second illustration. The merchant finding a pearl of such supreme value that he gladly sold everything else he owned in order to have it. The picture, the point, is that Christ and his kingdom are so incomparably valuable that when somebody sees them for what they truly are, they will joyfully pay any price to have them, even if it means losing everything else. Incomparable value, passionate desire, and unparalleled satisfaction. That's what it means to treasure something above all things. We can take another example from Psalm 73. You're welcome to turn there, but you don't have to. But in Psalm 73, the psalmist Asaph is wrestling with God over what he what what feels like an inconsistency between what he believes to be true about God and what he sees to actually be happening in the world around him. He says truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me my feet had almost slipped my my feet had almost stumbled my steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here I am trying to follow God because I believe he's good, and those who don't care at all about God seem to be having all of the fun and all of the success. That, that was his dilemma. And he wrestles deeply with this. He brings these complaints to God. But what he eventually realizes in the psalm is that he's been measuring God's goodness against the standard of the wrong kind of treasure. It's not what this world can give us. The treasure is God himself. The treasure is God himself. Listen to his conclusion in verses 25 to 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Incomparable value, passionate desire, and unparalleled satisfaction. That's what he finds in God. And so, a vision to see Christ treasured above all things means first focusing on God and his incomparable value, his utter and supreme worthiness. He is the creator. He is the king. He is the judge and the savior, our triune God. He is that treasure hidden in the field, the pearl of greatest price. And there's nothing in heaven or on earth 
that deserves such glory, such honor, such love and allegiance and passion and faith? As heaven testifies in Revelation chapter 4, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And again, speaking of Christ, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That is the God that we serve. That is His infinite value and worth. And treasuring Christ means recognizing that incomparable value, that superior worthiness. Second, treasuring Christ expresses a passionate desire for Him that ought to fill our hearts. What you treasure most is what you desire most. Think about it. That, that's pretty plain logic. What you treasure most is what you desire most. As John Piper explains, when you see something as true and beautiful and valuable, you savor it. That is, you treasure it. You cherish and admire and prize it. And so treasuring Christ is necessarily marked by a passion for Christ. Not for what Christ gives me or does for me, but for Christ himself. Learning to long for the unsearchable riches of his glory as the merchant longs for the pearl or the shipbuilder longs for the sea. Or as the psalmist puts it in in Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Passion, desire, longing for the one who's worthy. In fact, if we don't long for Christ and his glory, then we haven't really seen it, or we're not really looking. Piper continues, if, if you don't savor Christ, you haven't seen Christ for who he is. If you don't prize him above all things, you haven't apprehended his true worth. When we truly taste the goodness and glory of Christ, we can't help but want him. Everything else pales in cheap comparison. He becomes our passionate desire such that we will joyfully pay any price to have him, even if it means losing everything else. And the reason we're willing to pay that price is because we're convinced that the prize is worth it. The prize is worth it. It's satisfying to us. We treasure Christ and his glory because it brings us the most joy and contentment and delight. And so seeing Christ treasured is not just about recognizing his worth. It's not just about our passionate desire. It's also about the unparalleled satisfaction that we find in him. There's nothing better for us. There's nothing better for our friends and neighbors in the Metro West. There's nothing better for the nations than to know Jesus and be known by him. 
to see and savor him in all of his glory. The Apostle Paul expresses this in Philippians 3. As he's reflecting on his own identity and and his own pursuit of God, he recognizes that if he really wanted to, there's all sorts of things in life, in his own life, that he could find his value and significance in. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. If I really wanted to find my life and value in my heritage or my religious performance, I've got this. But then he says this in verses 7 to 9. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because, listen to it, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, the incomparable value of my greatest treasure. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God That depends on faith. Simply put, what Paul discovered and what he wants us to discover is that Jesus is better than anything this world can offer. And so satisfying that he is worth losing everything in this world for. And so we want to see him treasured above all things. So why does this matter? What difference does this idea actually make? Why should this picture of Christ treasured above all things, why should that be a compelling vision for us? Uh, Why should we expect it to capture our imaginations or to drive us to fulfill our mission to glorify God as a family of believers who make disciples for Christ? What's the big deal with this specific vision. Well, first, it's in concert with the refocusing process that we went through as a church and what we discovered from it. As we spent time listening to the Lord together and to each other, uh, and then put all that we had been hearing together about the kind of impact God's calling this specific church to at this time in this place, this is the picture that emerged from that process. To see Christ treasured above all things. And, and we take that process seriously. We asked God to meet us and we believe that he did. But this picture is about much more than our humble process. This is the fruit of the gospel. If you think about it, this is the fruit of the gospel. This is the testimony of Scripture and the very goal of God's great plan of salvation. And therefore, the greatest need in our world, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, our our region here, the vision of Christ 
treasured above all things is not simply a motivation for us to be about the call of making disciples. It's the goal of making disciples that Christ would be treasured above all things in every heart. That he would receive the glory he deserves as men and women turn from false gods and find their identity and their life and their joy in the Savior. The reality is that that people are made for worship. People are made for worship. It's in our DNA. We're worshiping creatures. Everybody worships something. We all treat something in our lives as ultimate, worthy of our highest honor and praise. If you think about just daily life, I give attention to things that I find valuable. I value my family. I spend time with them. I value my job. I go to work. Or I value money. I go to work. What we find value in is what we give our attention to. But I give ultimate attention and ultimate allegiance to what I find most valuable either God or something else. We all treasure everybody, you, me, your neighbors. We all treasure something above all things. And then what we do is we build our lives around that treasure, whatever it is. We look to it for our satisfaction and our identity, our significance in life. We desire it above everything else. And, and that desire, those passions and longings shape how we actually live. What we want in our hearts is just as influential, if not more so, on how we actually live day to day than what we believe with our minds. You can have all of the right doctrine, know all of the right information and still give yourself to something that you know is wrong because your heart wants that something else more we are what we love our passions shape our behaviors as jamie smith uh, in his recent book called you are what you love explains we adopt ways of life not usually because we think through our options but rather because some picture captures our imaginations, some vision of the good life, some picture of what we think counts as flourishing. And those wants reverberate from our heart, from the epicenter of the human person, the wellspring from which our actions and behaviors flow. Jesus puts it this way in Luke 6.45, He says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So we are what we love. What you treasure above all things in your heart shapes everything about you. It shapes everything about your neighbor's. But only one thing is actually worthy of being that treasure. That's the problem. Only one thing is actually worthy of having that place of honor in this world. And that is God himself. 
We were created for his glory. That's how Isaiah describes it in, in, in Isaiah 43, 7. We were created for God's glory. We are saved for God's glory. We're saved not just because of what we get out of it. We're saved ultimately to make much of God. That's, that's one of Paul's redounding themes throughout his letters, especially you think of Ephesians 1 as he's reveling in God's Great plan of salvation. Three times he just shouts out, it's to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. And the story ends with people from all nations giving glory to God and to the Lamb. That beautiful worship scene in Revelation 4 and 5. We were made for God's glory. We're saved for God's glory. We will give God his glory. And the reality is, you can only treasure one thing above all things. You can only treasure one thing above all things. If you think back to Jesus' parables again, to gain the kingdom, the people in both parables had to lose everything else. So there's only one treasure that's worth it, and you can only treasure one thing above all things. The kingdom of God is not like a a fancy pearl that you can just add to a, a string of other pearls to dress it up a little bit. Other kingdoms, other saviors, other allegiances. If you're going to take hold of this one pearl, it means saying no to everything else. To everything else. But he is worth it. He is the singular treasure that is worth losing everything else for. God alone is worthy. But he does not receive the glory he deserves in our world. He doesn't receive the glory he deserves from my own heart. This is not true of the world that we actually live in today. It's not true of our neighborhoods or our schools or our towns. It's not always true of our relationships, our families and friends and neighbors and coworkers. For one simple reason, that Christ is not always that which we treasure most in our hearts. There's other things that get in the way. There's other treasures that compete for our allegiance and our affection. And so we often replace our treasure. People opt for something other than God, something less. As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, he writes that, we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the proper treasure. We've exchanged that glory for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Idols. Whether stone or idols in our hearts. Something less than God that we end up treating like God. John Piper explains that we were made to know and treasure the glory of God above all things. And when we trade that treasure for images, everything is disordered. The Son of God's glory was made to shine at the center of the solar system of our soul. And when it does, all the planets of our life are held in their proper orbit. But when the sun is displaced, everything flies apart. And that's the world we live in, right? 
everything flying apart. Why do people find themselves caught up in addiction? Because they want something and they think that alcohol or drugs or porn will give it. They've been captivated by a certain vision of life, an experience or an escape that that they've come to treasure above all things, and despite what they know in their heads to be the dangers of it, they prize that experience so much that it's worth losing everything else for. Jobs, family, friends, homes. Why do people fixate on body image or being successful or acquiring wealth? Because they've been captivated by a certain vision of life that they believe will provide them with the lasting meaning and satisfaction they want. And they're willing to do whatever it takes to achieve it. There's something else that's replaced God as the center of their solar system. Even though they'll never actually find what they're looking for in those things. Not only will their treasure disappoint, it will sever them forever from the true treasure, which is Christ. And so that's the world we live in, where where life is disordered because something other than Jesus has captivated our imaginations and become the center of our lives, of our neighbors' lives, and so on. So what do we have to offer then as a church? What do we have to offer the Metro West? What do our missionaries have to offer the world? We have a better picture. We have a greater treasure. A treasure that's truly worth our affection and our allegiance. A treasure that genuinely satisfies the depths of our soul and will not leave us hanging. A prize that is so incomparably great that it's worth building my entire life around it. For our good and for the good of our neighbor. Because there's simply nothing better for us than to treasure Christ above all things. Seeing Christ treasured is not just a motivation for making disciples. It is the goal of making disciples. Because when Christ is treasured above all things in our hearts, God receives the glory that He deserves and people find in Him a satisfaction that is unparalleled on earth. And there's hope in that message. I mean, you think of the rootlessness that dominates so many young people today or or ways that our unbelieving friends try to find identity and satisfaction in a, in a pantheon of false gods who are always going to disappoint. Politics, sex, career, kids, money, possessions, education, power. And you think of the challenges that cloud our lives and our relationships. The busyness that distracts us, the consumerism, the drive for achievement and success. You can even think of, of healthy passions that people have that, that they're, they're passionate about. They drive so many people, but they lack an adequate foundation or solution in and of themselves. 
social justice, environmentalism, equality. Or the crises that mark our society today. Racism, poverty, refugees, addiction, polarization, prolonged adolescence. So you can think of all of that disorder in the world. In our neighborhoods, in our own lives, everything that's been flung apart. What happens when the glory of Christ is returned to the center? What happens to all of those issues, all of those problems, all of those difficulties when the glory of Christ is returned to the center? When people see him as he truly is? The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, steadfast and stable, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. What happens when Christ and his glory are returned to the center of our lives or the center of others' lives is that lives are changed. When God who said, let light shine out of darkness, shines into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the darkness that we once loved loses its taste. Obedience becomes sweet, and sin leaves us sour. What happens is that loves are reordered, and motivations are refocused. It's no longer my agenda or my cause or my ambition that drives me, but the cause of Christ, which is so much bigger and actually puts all other causes into perspective. My glory is in His glory and nothing else. The drive for money and power and success. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? The drive for justice and mercy and making the world a better place? Jesus paves the way for that and shows us how puny our vision is apart from His death and resurrection. When the glory of Christ is returned to the center of life, what happens is that we find the satisfaction that we need, the significance, 
the security that we depend on, the wisdom that we need to guide us, the love that fills us, the joy that frees us to live our lives in passionate pursuit of the unsearchable glories of Christ and to invite others to share in that joy. Again, to quote Piper, the healing of the soul begins by restoring the glory of God to its flaming, all-attracting place at the center. The healing of the soul begins by restoring the glory of God to its flaming, all-attracting place at the center. That is our vision. That's what we want to see happen in our lives, in our church, in our neighborhoods, in every corner of the earth, that Christ would be treasured above all things. And of course, we need a strategy for that to happen. You need to plan if you're going to move from mission to vision. And, and we've summarized that strategy in eight core commitments. We're going to talk about that a little bit more this morning downstairs during our meeting. And actually, we're going to look at each of those core commitments and the role that they play in seeing Christ treasured uh, over the next several weeks on Sunday mornings. God-centered worship, biblical exposition, prayer, life-on-life discipleship, Christ-centered community, local outreach, church planting, global missions. There are eight strategies that we have for seeing Christ treasured above all things. And those commitments are shaped by a set of core values that we'll also talk about a little bit more downstairs. Gospel centrality, submission to Scripture, dependence on God, maturity in Christ, grace-driven relationships, people over programs, every member on mission, and gospel partnerships beyond Westgate. But the question I want us to reflect on this morning as we close here is this. Do we want this? Do we want to see Christ treasured above all things? Does that vision captivate us? Do we want to see God receive the glory that He deserves from our neighbors, from our friends, co-workers? Do we want people to be satisfied in Him such that they find freedom from sin and shame and an indestructible joy in Jesus? Do we long for the unsearchable glories of Christ as the merchant longs for the pearl, as the shipbuilder longs for the sea? Knowing what to do and how to do it, all of our strategies, it's not enough. We have to want to do it. We have to want the glories of Christ. And I confess that my heart doesn't always want this. I know it's good and right and true, but my heart is not always engaged. There are times where I find myself going through the motions because things need to get done, but not caught up in the glories of Christ and the pursuit of Him. I want to want this, but I don't always want it. And I'm pretty sure that I'm not alone in that. 
And so, before we can really strategize or plan or execute, the most important thing for us is to begin to cultivate in our own hearts a passion for the glory of Christ. And there's only one way to do that. By spending time with Jesus. That's the only way. To spend time with Jesus. To see him for who he truly is. And so prize him as he truly deserves. And to help us do that as a congregation, we're supplying a couple tools for you to help you spend time with Jesus. The first is a short personal Bible study that you found in your worship folder this morning. Or there's extras on the table in the foyer. And I want to encourage you to set aside time this week to spend with Jesus in his word and to prayerfully reflect on this vision of seeing Christ treasured above all things. That short Bible study is designed to help you do that. The second tool that we're giving you this morning is a short book by John Piper called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. We have a copy for each household. Um, You can grab it. They're on tables right outside as you head downstairs for, for the lunch this morning. And we're encouraging you all to read it together as a church this fall. We've provided a little suggested reading schedule on the back of the Bible study. There are few people who do a better job of shining a spotlight on the manifold glory of Jesus than John Piper. This book will help you delight in Jesus more because of who he is and what he's done. And so we want you to have that resource and we want to to think about it together because Jesus is worth it. He is worth it. Incomparable value, passionate desire, unparalleled satisfaction. He is the greatest treasure, whether we recognize it or not. And so we want our hearts to catch up with our confession. We want to treasure Christ above all things in our own hearts that we might help others treasure him as well. Because he's worth it. As heaven testifies again, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That is our king. That is our treasure. Let's pray. Lord, would you captivate our hearts? And Lord, we we confess that the only way for our hearts to be truly caught up in you is to know you more and to see you more clearly. Lord, we can't manufacture passion. And we're really good at going through motions. But Lord, you deserve so much more than that. You deserve our whole heart. And so would you shine the light of the glory of your name in the face of Jesus Christ into our hearts that you would receive the glory you deserve and that we would find in you a satisfaction that is unrivaled in this earth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.